Straw Hut Media. What happens when two groups of men, who are often stereotyped in opposite ways, intersect? When we think about stereotypes for men in gangs, we might think of hypermasculine, heterosexual, maybe even violent. When we think about the stereotypes assigned to gay men, we go the opposite direction. This contradiction is what interested Vanessa Panfill and made her want to research it. What does it mean to be gay and in a gang? I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. My name is Vanessa Panfill. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. Vanessa is a criminologist, a sociologist, and an urban ethnographer. Pretty much all of the work that I do has to do with LGBTQ people's experiences with crime, with victimization, with the criminal and juvenile justice systems, and um, anything related to that. So for about two and a half years, I conducted an interview-based and partially ethnographic study with gay and bisexual gang members in Columbus, Ohio. Vanessa is also originally from Columbus, Ohio. And the first men she interviewed were people she had known when she was a teenager growing up in Columbus herself. So we all met seeking services as young LGBTQ people in Columbus, Ohio at a youth drop-in center. And so that's where I first heard stories about, for example, them fighting back against anti-gay harassment or their involvement in gangs. And when Vanessa went to graduate school and decided to dedicate her research to the intersection of being gay and in a gang, she started by calling up some of the people she'd met back at that LGBTQ plus youth drop-in center. We had some shared experiences, some shared memories, shared references, and you know the, the gay scene in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and so they were my initial sample and they helped introduce me to other people. Vanessa wanted to try and understand the intersection of gender and sexuality among people who were in gangs. What are the tensions and contradictions that they feel in their lives? Uh, what are the expectations placed on them? What sorts of stereotypes do they feel they need to respond? Two, um, and so I also explored the ways that they um, resisted marginalization um, and built community, made money, uh, chose their own families. Those were some of the things that I focused on in my study. So now is probably a good time to point out that it's just going to be me and Vanessa talking about this today, two middle-class white people. And that's potentially problematic. We did try to get in touch with some gay gang members, but maybe not surprisingly, it wasn't that easy. Vanessa interviewed 53 men for her research, 48 of which were or had been members of gangs. They were all between the ages of 18 and 28. The majority were men of color. And their identities are protected. So today, we're acting as proxies, as buffers, so we can talk about this really crucial intersection of race and sexuality. If you're listening today and you have insights you want to share, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram. But for right now, let's look at some of the really interesting things Vanessa discovered in her conversations with these men. So one question that I get with some frequency is why I didn't interview uh, women. You know, did, did I meet any lesbian or bisexual gang members? You know, why didn't I talk to them? 
She says it came down to challenging stereotypes. There is such an obvious disconnect between the stereotypes regarding gay men and the stereotypes regarding men in gangs. They just flew in the face of all these assumptions that we had, right? And I just really wanted to dig into what these criminological assumptions were about gangs, what these popular opinions were about gangs. You know, I really wanted to dig into that tension, what was going on there. And so I really focused the study about men and about masculinity. It's maybe also surprising that these men opened up to someone who looks like Vanessa. She is, after all, a middle-class white lady. But the fact that she knew some of them from her teenage years, that helped. They knew her name. They remembered her. But even more importantly, she says she just stuck around. A lot. So some people refer to ethnography as the hanging around method. Um, And you just get to know each other. So we went out to bars. We went to clubs. We went bowling. We went to house parties. uh, Some of us even went to the Columbus Zoo together one time. Still. She says she struggled building the trust she needed. Some people said, oh, well, white equals police. You know, are you a police officer? Uh, One person told me never to wear khaki shorts because they thought it would arise suspicion. Um, We went to a Vogue ball together and someone like an an attendee at the Vogue ball asked me if I owned the building. Um, And my participants thought this guy assumed I was at the Vogue ball to make sure my property didn't get destroyed or something. Vanessa says it was important that they knew she wanted to tell their stories. I want to tell your story. I want your story to be heard. I want people to know what's going on in your life. You're the expert on your life. Can you teach me? Can you teach others about your life? Columbus references help too. She was a local, not some academic from somewhere else. But I would say that the biggest uh, factor that helped me gain the trust of the men in my study was that I was openly gay. And I uh, knew a little bit about what they were experiencing in terms of growing up gay, having come out, having faced homophobia. One experience stands out in her memory. I was on my way to go interview several members of uh, one gay gang. So I'd already interviewed uh, one member of that gay gang. And he said, I'll introduce you to other members of the gang. And so I went to the location, uh, someone's house. And I walked inside and and a whole bunch of people were sitting in a semicircle and they were all facing this one chair that they had set up (laughs) in the corner of the room for me. So I sat down at the chair and they said, "Tell tell us about your study, tell us about what you're doing. And I started talking and one of them interrupted me and said, wait, are you gay? And I said, oh yeah, yeah, of course. And they were like, oh, oh yeah, okay, okay, okay. This is great, this is great. And one person yelled out, oh, she family, y'all. Like they were, they were able to trust me that I wasn't some you know, outside straight person who didn't have any clue what was going on coming in to try to find out what was go- going on in gay people's lives. And so they felt like they could trust me because of that. Even though there were moments when the distance between them was obvious, Vanessa says she wanted to address her white privilege and use it in a powerful way. And ultimately, it was queerness that brought them together. And they would tell me that very directly. They would say, you know, if you were a straight woman or you were a straight guy, we, we probably wouldn't talk to you. And if we did, we wouldn't tell you everything that we've told you. The way that one man in my study put it was, he said, he, he said something like, you know, straight novelists try to put their ideas of what gay means out in the world. And we want something that comes from our mouth. We want something that's ours, that, that's telling our story. And obviously, LGBTQ people are very different on many dimensions. But there's something shared about growing up in a heterosexist, transphobic society that, you know, we, we can 
we have some shared understanding. So what is it like to be gay and in a gang? Stereotypes of gang members are often that they're hypermasculine, heterosexual, quick to fight, basically the opposite of stereotypes of gay men. But even beyond that, people have terms for gang members uh, that are often very derogatory. So people might say things like thugs, um, that sort of thing. The word thug is basically a more socially acceptable version of the N-word. And just like the N-word, it carries different meanings depending on who says it. But it should be enough to know that Rush Limbaugh called Barack Obama a thug back in 2012, that Donald Trump mistook a black supporter for a protester in 2016 and asked him if he was paid $1,500 to be a thug before having him escorted out. If you close your eyes and picture who is meant to be described when you hear the word thug, the answer is pretty clear. Another thing people assume about people in gangs is that they're out committing violent crimes all the time. That's actually not true, based on about 100 years of studies on gang members. Uh, we know that actually most of what they do with their time is what other people do with their time, which is they hang out with friends, they do, you know, legal activities. But we have this focus in our society about gang members as violent thugs, as ruthless violent thugs. The men that Vanessa talked to acknowledged that even though they were in a gang, it didn't mean what movies and TV would have you believe. So they made sure to talk about how they weren't involved in senseless violence. So they, they made very strong distinctions of what kinds of violence they would or wouldn't be involved in. Um, and some of them, for example, who sold drugs, they would say, well, I just sell weed. You know, I'm, I'm not a bad drug dealer. I'm not out there to hurt people. So they were trying to distance themselves from these kinds of stereotypes. And the men in gay gangs in particular talked about their gangs as families and they described their activities as things that families do. So they were talking about eating together, cookouts, going to clubs. Um, they were talking about even helping each other look for jobs or complete their schooling. So some of the men in my study were going back to school in alternative high school programs or trying to pursue higher education. And so they're saying, yeah, we might fight with rival gangs and we might uh, sell drugs or sex and we might do these other things, but let me tell you about the things that we do to support each other and to um, try to improve each other's lives. In doing her research, Vanessa separated the kinds of gangs into three categories. For everyone I interviewed, I just asked them directly, you know, can you estimate what percentage of your gang is gay, lesbian, or bisexual? I just asked them, can you estimate it? And so in terms of the straight, in terms of like those heteronormative gangs, those traditional gangs, people often said, you know, oh, nobody but me, or, you know, I, I don't know of anyone but me. They're, they've never revealed themselves to me. The largest group was what she called heteronormative or traditional gangs. In those gangs, the vast majority of the men she talked to were not out to their gang friends. One man in particular had a lot of reasons to not come out. He said he was worried the gang would treat him differently. He thought they might harass him. He thought they might not trust him. Uh, he thought they might be concerned that he'd hit on them. Uh, he thought they might even kick him out of the gang. Uh, he thought they wouldn't see him as hard or as tough. And he thought that they might actually retaliate physically. So this is, this is a long list of reasons that they're concerned to come out, right? They, they feared alienation, they feared ostracism, they feared expulsion from their gangs, but they also feared physical assault, rape, and even death. 
The gay men who were in those traditional or heteronormative gangs said that they felt like they were living separate lives. They said they were living a double or a triple life. And they said these lives, they just can't intersect. There's my gay life and there's my gang life. Um, I, I just can't let them cross, at least not for quite some time. They were also very careful about how they expressed themselves, avoiding anything that might communicate femininity. So anything they thought would give them away, so to speak. Um, so they said, you know, I'm really careful with my clothing choices. I'm really careful with my mannerisms. And so it was this constant effort to control their gender presentation when they were around those traditional gangs. One danger of coming out or being outed while in a traditional gang was being forced out of the gang by violence. Some people might have heard the phrase blood in, blood out for gangs. That does happen with some gangs. That does not happen with all gangs. Um, some of that is is media driven. But, but um, there are some gangs that in order to get in, you have to fight you know, to prove you can fight, to prove that you're tough. And in order to leave, uh, if, you, if you're leaving behind the gang, they might, they might beat you up uh, in order to allow you to leave. Vanessa says she didn't come across it much in her study, but there was one instance. This man was leaving his gang because of his gay relationship, because the gang didn't approve. So him having to fight to leave or him getting bled out was also a form of punishment for repudiating the gang. Um, and so I think the man who got bled out felt that the gang was embarrassed that he was now publicly gay. And so he really felt like him getting bled out of the gang was like the one, the one final fight that the gang was gonna have about him now being openly gay. Still. For the most part, though, Vanessa says that sort of thing was pretty rare. Even though blood in, blood out makes for compelling TV, it doesn't actually happen with all the gangs. Vanessa says she met a lot of people who left gangs in much less dramatic ways. A lot of gang members leave their gangs just by fading away, by not hanging out with them anymore, or by saying, hey, I have other responsibilities that I need to attend to. Um, but if you're leaving the gang because you had a falling out with him or you're leaving the gang because you don't want to be the victim of violence, it is more common for someone to face violent consequences for leaving under those circumstances. A second type of gang that Vanessa identified, she calls hybrid gangs, meaning there's a sizable minority of gay, lesbian, or bisexual people. It was a critical mass of people, so about a quarter to almost even a half of the gang. And so yeah, there's still majority straight gangs, but um, in terms of how they treat gay, lesbian, or bisexual members, it was just so different from those heteronormative gangs that were, you know, almost 100% straight. Originally, Vanessa thought of hybrid gangs as a subset of straight gangs. But the more she spoke to people, the more she saw vital similarities between hybrid gangs and gay gangs. The hybrid gangs were like straight gangs in most ways, except for in their interpersonal dynamics. They were out to their gangs, they talked about their boyfriends and their hookups openly, and the gang didn't care because that wasn't a novelty, right? They, there were other people in the gang like them, and specifically for a few of the gangs, uh, they had just sort of grown up together. So men in hybrid gangs said things like, well, they know the real me, or, you know, we grew up together, I, I can be the real me around them. When we come back, coming out and being known.
Welcome back. Today we're talking to Vanessa Panfell. She spent two and a half years talking to gay men in gangs in Columbus, Ohio, about what it's like to be gay and in a gang. Those of us who are uh, gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender, uh, we know that coming out isn't a one-time thing, right? That you have to come out repeatedly to various people. And that, as you know, there are varying levels of risk depending on who you're coming out to and under what context. A big part of Vanessa's study, she says, was learning about the men's families, partners, friends, and worldviews. And one of the reasons that, you know, some men feared coming out to straight gangs was because of the homophobia they'd seen or experienced their entire lives. So it wasn't just about gangs, but it was about our culture and our society. Some of the men that she spoke to had had traumatic experiences coming out to their parents and their families. Um, These included being beaten repeatedly for coming out as gay or being forced to go to church for the equivalent of an exorcism. Um, So they were concerned that if they faced homophobia in circles that were supposed to give them unconditional love and support, what could possibly be facing them in circles that are seen to be tough and be ruthless? And they'd also experienced bullying and harassment in schools, even if they weren't out as gay. So they knew something about social dynamics when you're seen as the other, when there are groups of people and you don't seem to fit into them at any given time. And this reveals a common thread between gang culture and non-gang culture. Absolutely. It was still this overall concern that if I see and hear and feel and experience homophobia in my daily life, why would this gang be any different? A good proportion of the men Vanessa spoke to who were in traditional gangs weren't out to their families. And if and when they did come out, they often felt more stigma around being gay than around being in a gang or having been incarcerated. So there was a man in my study where he said uh, he, he had been in prison for, um, I think, something like seven years for, for a robbery and a serious assault. And he said that when I came out of prison, my mom let me stay on her couch. She supported me. You know, she, she was there for me. And when I told her that I was bisexual, she told me I couldn't stay at her house anymore. I also don't want to give the impression that you shouldn't let people who return from prison sleep on your couch or support them. I don't want to set it up as a false dichotomy. Um, but it's it's absolutely illustrative that um, things that would stigmatize someone in a lot of contexts were seen as less stigmatizing than him coming out as gay. One source of power for openly gay men was something called being, quote unquote, known. I actually didn't know before I went out in the field how important that was going to be. Uh, People, especially in gay gangs, talked about that very frequently. You know, you want to be known. You want your gang to be known. Basically, being known is being able to achieve stereotypically masculine ideals, making money, being taken seriously, gaining status, looking good, but doing it as an openly gay man. So you want to know him, you want to spend time with him, but you don't want to make an enemy with him. People literally knew your name. They literally knew who you were. They knew something about your reputation. They maybe knew something about your gang. One of Vanessa's most compelling findings in her study was gay men fighting back. Vanessa told us about a guy named Imani who had come to the LGBT Youth Center in 2005 or 2006. He told a story about being repeatedly harassed by a group of men for being gay. 
He was threatened with violence. He was chased. He thought they were going to jump him. And after two instances of them harassing him for being gay, following him, attempting to beat him up, he just felt compelled to fight back. Imani ended up cutting one of the assailants with the blade that he carried for protection and got away. Shortly after that, his family moved out of the area. And I had heard this story at the time, like, like current to when it had happened. And I thought right then and there, what does it mean that young gay people are fighting back? What does it mean that they're joining gangs? How do they experience that? Um, and so the story had really stuck with me, not only because it was appalling that someone would have to defend himself for being gay lest he be attacked more, but also because we do have these assumptions that gay men are weak, that they're effeminate. You know, people say things like, oh, he's limp-wristed. I mean, that's literally a reference to to your physicality, right? Um, all these words you can think of that, that assume gay men, like I said, are weak and wouldn't fight back. But in fact, over two-thirds of the men in Vanessa's study had been in a physical fight with another person because of anti-gay harassment, threats of violence, or actual violence. And some men in my study estimated that they had fought 10, 20, or 30 times over anti-gay harassment. 30 times! They explained to me that this insult, you know, being called a fag or a faggot, was, in their words, not the thing to say to me. They, they did not want to be called that. Um, and sometimes these fights were extremely serious, resulting in injuries. Aggressively fighting back against anti-gay harassment basically reclaimed the masculine status that was being questioned. So one of the men in my study, he said something like, when you call me a faggot, I know what you mean by that. And he wasn't going to let someone get away with insulting his masculinity and his sexual identity. Um, and a few people in my study even did something that they called fagging out, uh, which was basically acting in aggressive and flamboyant ways simultaneously. Um, and that was to mark themselves as gay during their response to being insulted for being gay. So this, this action of fagging out or, or fighting back against anti-gay harassment, it turns the anti-gay insult on its head. Some of Vanessa's favorite sound bites are what these men said about fighting back. You know, they said things like faggots fight too. Uh, one person said, I don't know why they think gay people can't fight. Uh, one man said, I'm going to show you what this faggot can do. Um, and then finally, one that I reference all the time is, I will fight you like I'm straight. So he's, he's saying, you're, you're assuming that I'm not going to fight back, but I'm going to. I'm going to fight you like I'm straight, like, you know, like you would fight back. Um, and these comebacks, they directly challenge many of the assumptions made about gay men that I talked about, that they lack nerve, that they're weak, that they're unwilling to physically fight. But the men in my study, they were determined not to be ready victims. As they said, you know, that, that is not the thing to say to me. Did you run into anyone in your study or, you know, a couple who were together as a couple while in a gang? Yes, I did. Um, they were not in the same gang together, but they had similar social circles. So one of the men who was in this relationship, he had been in a gang for, uh, I, I don't quite remember, but something like 10 or 12 years. He had spent a number of years incarcerated for gang-related crimes. He actually had tattoos of his gang and his name all over his face. Um, I mean, he was very clearly identifiable as a gang member uh, and had a reputation in the city um, for being a gang member and being a drug seller. 
Vanessa says publicly he had a girlfriend and a child, but he had also been in a five-year relationship with a man who was in another straight gang. And that's how I met him, was through that other man who referred him to the study. Vanessa says on one hand, they both had a difficult time. He felt like publicly he was saying and doing one thing, and privately he was saying and doing another. And he said, you know, I, I love my girl. She, she's, she's great, but I also have these other feelings that I want to try to explore. He didn't like keeping secrets or being deceptive, but he didn't really see another option. Privately was the only way he could explore his same-sex interests um, because of his reputation around town, because of this public persona. And so he was in this relationship with another man. And when I interviewed that man, he told me, he said, I, I, I love him so much. He loves me too. He trusts me more than anyone else. He has these deep feelings that I wish he could reveal, but he can't because, uh, because of his reputation. Vanessa had private conversations with both of them about their relationship and how it felt. They felt like they connected very well. They felt like they were compatible, um, but they just felt like there were other circumstances that weren't allowing them to be public at the time. And they had talked about trying to have their own private sort of commitment ceremony, like like just the two of them to, to establish some sort of commitment to each other long term, but that, it, you know, just even that w- was, um, uh, they... They just had mixed feelings about how their relationship would be uh, seen if it were to be discovered. Even though I asked people in my study about their gang and crime experiences and, and you know, being gay and in a gang, I also asked them just about their their life history. I asked them um, about their identity. You know, how did they form an identity as a gay man or as a bisexual man in the case of some of them? Um, You know, when did they start coming out to people? What were their reactions? But one of the questions that I asked was, what does it mean to be a real man? What qualities does a real man have? Vanessa says she got really consistent answers on that question. They need to take care of their responsibilities. They need to figure out ways to make things happen. That was a phrase men in my study really like to use. They said, you got to make it happen. You got to make things happen. Um, So being a real man meant figuring out how to make money and hopefully legally. The men in my study wanted to make money legally. They wanted a nine to five job. They wanted a legal job. But um, there were a lot of structural factors that prevented that from happening regularly. But again, so a real man can figure out how to make money, figure out how to support people who need support, and a real man can make his goals come to fruition. They didn't say, a real man can beat anyone up. They didn't say, a real man fights all the time. They did say things like a real man defends his loved ones, defends other people. A real man defends himself. Their answers about being a real man were not actually about being physically tough. They were about being mentally tough, about being mentally present, about being someone who could support other people, being a rock for people. Those were the values they had for men. So what was really interesting was that in these descriptions, they focused on caring, actually. They focused on a sense of duty. Um, And that really just isn't what people might assume about gang members' values. Because of where Vanessa's field of study is, most of what she reports on is related to criminal behavior. But she says the value system within gangs are really not that far from those outside of gangs. 
I really think it's important to say these men are gang members. A lot of these men have committed violent crimes. A lot of these men have committed other crimes like drug selling or theft, any number of crimes. But that's not where their value system lies in terms of being a man. They, they don't want to have to do those things. They would rather be able to get a, a, a nine to five as they refer to it. You know, they want steady employment. They want their family to be proud of them. They want to be able to support a future partner and children. That was another thing I heard very commonly. They said, like anyone else, I want to get married. I want to have kids. And this, when I was doing my research, this was actually before it was even legal to be a same-sex couple and be married in Ohio. But that was one of their goals. I want to be able to get married. I want to be able to have children. I want to be able to support my children. I don't want my kids to do the things that I had to do. So they had these very... Uh, what we might see as as everyday or quote unquote normal <laughs> goals and, and hopes for their future. But that's just not how we often talk about gang members. Do you feel like their perspective was that a same sex relationship could be their long term life like they could have a same-sex life partner as opposed to you mentioned one person being bisexual and it maybe just being more sexual and they intended to perhaps marry a woman and have children but do you feel like a, a long-term same-sex relationship was a viable option for many of them yeah so definitely well especially the ones who were in all gay gangs i mean everyone knew they were gay they weren't hiding that from anyone they didn't feel like they needed to hide that from anyone and so for them they absolutely said, you know, I want to be a good boyfriend. I want to be a, I want to get married. I want to be in a full committed relationship. And they were saying, you know, with another man, even though at the time legally that was, that wasn't legally possible, at least in Ohio. But what I take from that is that even that goal referenced an aspirational gay life. You know, I, I want this to be normalized. I want this to be legal. I, I want to be able to do that. And so I think in that way, they were actively critiquing these structures that would prevent them from being able to be openly gay or, or in that sort of relationship. But I will say that um, some of the men in the study were still sexually involved with women and wanted to be. Um, so often I refer to the men in my study as gay because that more, that, that more accurately reflects their speech patterns. So often they were setting up a difference between being gay and straight. So even if they identified as bisexual, they might say, when you come out as gay or when people think you're gay or when you come out, you know, they, they were referencing something different than being straight. And so I don't in any way mean to erase bisexual identity. I know that's something that that happens in, in media and in our culture, that bisexual identity is erased. So I don't want to do that. So some of them were indeed in sexual relationships with women or had been, um, and so some of, some of those folks didn't say, you know, yeah, I definitely am going to marry a woman or, yeah, I'm definitely going to marry a man. Um, but they were still saying, you know, I've experienced things as a result of being bisexual that gay people also experience. So they were trying to set up, like I said, that there's something meaningfully different in our culture between straight people and everyone who's not straight, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so to answer your question uh, in a more short, in a, in a shorter way, um, yes, the men who were openly gay, everyone knew who they were. Everyone knew they were gay. They were absolutely focused on a future with a with a man as their romantic partner. And the men who were bisexual didn't necessarily have uh, a strong leaning. There were men in the study who knew they were expected to settle down with a woman. They were actively working through their feelings about those expectations and were just sort of leaving it open. And I did want to mention there were 
Um, I think I, I think nine of the men in my study had actually fathered children, but their living situations looked very different. So one man actually lived with his child full time. Another, another several men had children, but didn't really have any contact with them. One man had sort of served as a sperm donor, you know, for, uh, for friends of his who were a lesbian couple. So there, there was a variety. Uh, one, one young man, actually, his, his daughter had died at a very young age, and he was still grieving that. Um, and so I, there were men who were fathers in my sample um, who had, who had um, had children as a result of relationships with women, but those men didn't necessarily want to continue having relationships with women. Um, so that was something else I explored. But again, I, I don't talk a ton about that in the book just because of the, the focus on, on being in a gang. Do you feel like the book is a resource for someone who is in a gang now and questioning their sexuality or their gender identity? Could you talk a little bit about what you would hope the book could be for someone who's experiencing this right now and either doesn't know what to do or feels alone? Yeah, so I'll, some of the men in my study actually said, the reason I want to participate in this study is so that other people, other young gay people can read about me, read about my story, read about what I did so that they know what not to do, you know, to the path to not take. But also I want to tell them you are not alone. There are people who will care about you. There are people who will accept you. You need to find those people in your life. It may take a while, um, but they're out there. Uh, and your story is important. Your life is important. In fact, Vanessa says after her first few interviews, they told her she should ask them what they would say. So she did. She started asking. I don't know if any of them said it gets better as such, but they were saying, you know, it's it's hard to be young. It's hard to um, it's hard to go through this, especially if you know you're in an urban setting. You're a young black gay man, and a lot of them talked about that really specifically. They're like, I'm black and I'm gay, and so I'm working against these particular stereotypes. Uh, you know, these racist stereotypes of black men. I'm working against these homophobic stereotypes of gay men. I'm in an urban setting, and and you know, a lot of the men in my study lived in areas of Columbus that were considered to be economically. Uh, depressed or economically marginalized. Um, and so they were saying, you know, you're, you're, there are other kids out there like me and I want to help them. I want, if my story can help, I want it to help. Sometimes I really grapple with the ethics of doing this kind of work. Like, should I really be talking about gay gang members when people are trying to take away LGBTQ people's rights? You know, is that really something I should be talking about? But I think we need to talk about this, especially if young gay men are seeking others for support in illicit ways against a heterosexist backdrop of familial and societal rejection. So it's a really telling statement to me that these young men join gangs which, you know, they can provide young people with protection, a sense of belonging and opportunities for socialization, but they're joining these gangs instead of or in addition to other social groups. And I think that we should think really critically about what it means that young queer people of color might think that joining a gang is their best way to feel safe, to be empowered, to make money and to build community. I think we need to think really critically about that. We'll put a link to the article Vanessa wrote for the conversation and a link to her book in the show notes. And you can follow her on Twitter to stay up to date with new publications. 
My social media presence is a bit lackluster. I need to work on it. Um, but you can uh, find me on Twitter at Vanessa Panfil, V-A-N-E-S-S-A-P-A-N-F-I-L, um, or through my faculty page at Old Dominion University. In terms of the book, The Gang's All Queer, The Lives of Gay Gang Members, you can find that either through NYU Press's website, or you can find that on Amazon. You can buy it in ebook or um, in a hard copy. Um, and I've even heard that it's at a number of local libraries. Thanks for listening. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Pride. You can follow me, at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. Sorry, I was just checking it. My iPad's on my bed. It's a very weird podcasting studio at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Um, in the, yeah, don't even ask.